God is indeed faithful to his word and to his servants. But who am I? I'm just a young married farmer who failed at the last thing he tried and now has a young family to provide for. When I think about what is going on with this new war, I feel small. While I worry about rain and crops, other young men my age worry about fighting and death. I know my place is here providing for Sally and Patsy, but I wonder if I should be fighting for my country. Welcome to the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast, with your hosts, Max, Liz, and Nigel. This podcast is produced by Playful World Ministries, a department of ACT International. All of the Epic Order of the Seven characters and adventures were created by and written by Jenny L. Cody. And I'm your narrator, Denny Brownlee. By the way, as you listen to this episode from the audiobook The Voice, The Revolution, and the Key, keep in mind you can download your very own copy of it by visiting audible.com. That's www.audible.com. And you'll find the entire collection of Jenny L. Cody's Epic Order of the Seven books by going to her website, epicorderofthe7.com. On today's episode, we'll bring you Chapter 31, and it's simply entitled, Soldier On. And later, Miss Jenny has an Easter egg for us. I hope it has money, or chocolate, of course. But Easter egg is just a metaphorical name. What Jenny has for us is a little mind game. But first, I'll get things started as your vocal reporter to introduce our hosts, but in reverse order. So, when it comes to mice, this chap will suffice. He's quick with advice, while charming and nice. It's Nigel P. Monaco. I say, you, you've listed me first, with a poem well rehearsed. It wasn't that great, but uh, it wasn't the worst. <laughs> uh, well done, old boy. Uh, thank you. Uh, next, when it comes to intellect, this cat is a whiz. If you're looking for a brainiac, well, our Liz is. Uh, here's Liz Briand. Oh, merci beaucoup. I shall be your advisor. Just announce, do not rhyme. It's the choice that is wiser. Oh, well, uh, merci back at you. Finally, there's no finer nor braver dog. That's just the facts. Not to mention, tis true, he's Scottish to the max. It's Maximilian Braveheart the Bruce. <laughs> Aye, t'was a fine job of introducing us all in a rhyme. But any more blather, and you'd be wasting our time. Indeed, I responded. No time to delay. Let's get this week's Chapter 31 underway. Then after that, we can all talk to Ginny. And then, uh, oh, oh, pardon. I cannot think of anything that will rhyme with Jenny. Uh, there's Denny. Uh, how about Penny or Kenny? Oh, oh Henny Penny. There's Denny. Oh, Twaby and Max, I like Henny Penny. I say, and here we thought we didn't have any. Turns out there be many, many, many. <laughs> like Denny. Um, oh, there's Lenny. Really? Aye, Lenny, good one, Liz. Uh, let's see, Lenny. I say, uh, let's not forget Benny. We, oui, uh, Benny, Henny Penny. I, uh, I like Kenny, too. Uh, so, while they play their little game, ignoring my name, here's Chapter 31, simply called Soldier On, which is what I will do. Pole Green Meeting House, Hanover, July 20th, 1755. Word quickly reached Hanover about Braddock's shocking defeat, and Samuel Davies prepared to address the nervous congregation. General Braddock had died four days after he was shot during his rout by the French and Indians. Two-thirds of his officers and men were either killed or wounded. 
George Washington was the only one on horseback who escaped injury, not even receiving a scratch. He wrote to his brother Augustine on July 18th, By the all-powerful dispensations of providence, I have been protected beyond all human probability and expectation. For I had four bullets through my coat, and two horses shot under me, yet escaped unhurt, although death was leveling my companions on every side. On that fateful morning, George Washington rose weakened from his sickbed and spent the better part of twenty-four hours saving the remnants of Braddock's defeated army. When Braddock fell, Washington assumed command by default and rallied the survivors, leading them in an organized retreat to safety. Governor Dinwiddie lauded Lieutenant Colonel George Washington as the hero of the Monongahela and rewarded him with a commission as Colonel of the Virginia Regiment and Commander-in-Chief of all forces now raised in the defense of His Majesty's colony. 23-year-old George Washington was given the task of defending Virginia's frontier with the first full-time American military unit in the 13 colonies. While people across Virginia were glad to have Colonel Washington at the helm, the war had just begun, and it had started with a massive defeat. Reports of now regular Indian kidnappings of settlers and atrocities to families on the frontier trickled in with those who had seen the carnage firsthand. Patrick Henry gathered along with 1,500 others at Pole Green Church to hear words of encouragement from Reverend Davies. Patrick was beside himself with concern for his family and his country. He had a newborn baby girl. Drought was ravaging his tobacco crops. Economic hardship would follow. And now the enemy had dealt a devastating blow to the British-American army. The threat of war loomed on Patrick's doorstep just 350 miles from his home. It had been four months since Davies had called the people together for a day of fasting and prayer. He didn't mince words when urging the people to repent in order to receive God's protection. Today, he read from the prophet Isaiah, who warned the people about the invasion of Jerusalem. The people of Jerusalem had exclaimed, Let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And then heard Isaiah's stern words. The people of Hanover were now receiving a stern warning from Reverend Davies. The prophet Isaiah, at the foresight of this, feels all the generous and mournful passions of a patriot, a lover of his country, of liberty, and religion. However, others were sunk into a stupid security all around him, and indulged themselves in mirth and luxury. He is alarmed and mourns for his country, Davies exclaimed, gripping his heart. O oh, Virginia, O oh, my country, shall I not weep for you? My heart pounds within me. I cannot keep silent. For I have heard the sound of the trumpet. I have heard the battle cry. Davies continued a long discussion of having every individual examine his or her behavior and to seek the Lord for help. But then he turned his attention to the established clergy of Virginia, laying responsibility on them for not speaking boldly enough to warn the people of God's judgment. O oh, Virginia, your ministers have ruined you. I speak not of all. Some of them, I hope, are an ornament to their profession and a blessing to their country. But there is little, very little, practical religion to be seen in our land. I speak this in the anguish of my heart, for in the course of my ministry among you, 
"'You have never heard me speak like this before.' "'No one left while Davies preached for more than an hour. "'Let us not be too much discouraged. "'Our country is in danger of famine and the sword, "'but the case is not desperate. "'Do not, therefore, give it up as a lost case,' Davies preached. "'Our inhabitants are numerous. "'Some parts of the country have promising crops. "'Our army, we hope, is not entirely cut off.' The New England forces are likely to succeed in their expeditions, and we have a gracious, though a provoked God, over all. To have a friend in heaven, a friend who is the Lord Almighty, what a strong support is this, and what is that religion good for which will not support a man under trials? Draw on the promise of Proverbs 18.10, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is safe. We have many reasons to fear. We are a sinful land. We are but poorly provided against war or famine. It is fit we should in our turn experience the fate of other nations, that we may know what sort of a world we live in. It is certain many will be great sufferers by the drought, and many lives will be lost in our various expeditions. Our poor friends in the frontier counties are slaughtered and scalped. In short, it is certain, be the final outcome what it will, that our country will suffer a great deal. Therefore, be humble. Be diligent in prayer for our army and for the unhappy families in our frontiers. And may the Lord Almighty be with us and the God of Jacob be our refuge. He's right, Patrick Henry thought. I've never heard him speak like this before, with such words about love of God and country in the same breath. He looked around at the congregation, and the people are hanging on to every word. Pine Slash Samuel Davies slowly rode his horse up the dusty lane leading to the humble home of Patrick and Sally Henry. After worship on Sunday, Patrick asked Davies to come visit their home. Patrick wanted Samuel to see Sally and meet his new baby daughter. He also wanted to talk. Davies frowned as he passed Patrick's dust-choked crops. By now the corn should have been tall and green, with silk tassels emerging from the top of the husks and healthy ears hidden beneath the leaves. But this corn was dwarfed, with curling leaves at its edges. The small tobacco plants were only four feet tall, with leaves parched from the lack of rain. Despite Patrick's continual toil in these fields, things looked bleak. It would be a miracle if he could fill even one hogshead come fall. Up ahead, Davy saw a gray cat sitting there on the lane. He smiled and dismounted his horse to walk the rest of the way to the house. As he reached the cat, she stood and lifted her curlicue tail in the air. He reached down to pet her. "'Why, hello there, little one.' "'Bonjour, Reverend Davies,' Liz meowed. Patrick came out of the house, tucking his clean shirt into his breeches, when he noticed Davies and Liz in the road. He lifted his hand in greeting and smiled at Davies. "'Welcome, Reverend Davies.' He hurried down the steps and to the lane. "'I see you've met our cat.' "'Good day, Patrick. Yes, I thought she was gray, but petting her I see she is... black?' Davies replied. "'brushing the dust off Liz's fur. "'Didn't you have a black cat when you were young? 
I remember meeting her when you broke your collarbone. Patrick put his hands on his hips and smiled at Liz. Yes, her name was Liz. She disappeared after we moved, but the day Sally and I married, this little thing showed up. I decided to name her Liz as well. Nelson came running up barking, and this is Nelson. Why, hello to you, Nelson, greeted Davies, giving the hound dog a scratch behind his ears. Please, come in. I want you to meet the princess of the house, Patrick said with a wink. Davies tied his horse to the post, where there was a bucket of water, and followed Patrick up the steps and inside. Sally, Reverend Davies is here, Patrick called. Seventeen-year-old Sally came walking in the small parlor holding a tiny baby girl with big brown eyes and rosy cheeks. Good afternoon, Reverend, Sally welcomed him. Thank you for coming. Allow me to present our first-born child, Martha, Patrick announced proudly, leaning over to kiss his daughter gently on the head. We call her Patsy. Isn't she beautiful? Davy's eyes lit up with joy. Yes, she is. He leaned over and placed his hand on the little bundle. Hello, Patsy. What a blessing from God you are. The Lord has given you very special parents who will train you up in the way you should go. Patsy cooed and wrapped her tiny hand around Davies's finger. He chuckled. <laughs> she already has me wrapped around her fingers. <laughs> she gets that from her mother, I think. <laughs> Patrick joked with a laugh. Let me get you something to drink. I, I know you're thirsty from your ride here. It's another hot, dry day. Thank you, Patrick, Davies answered, placing his hand on Sally's shoulder. Congratulations, Sally. I look forward to seeing Patsy run around the grass at Pole Green someday. That is, if it ever rains again. Indeed, Reverend, that's all we pray for, Sally said, putting Patsy up on her shoulder and bouncing her softly. "'Excuse me a moment while I feed the baby.' "'Of course,' Davies responded with a courteous bow. Patrick carried two tin cups of water into the room. "'Please, let's sit outside where there's a breeze.' Davies followed him out to the front porch where they took their seats. "'I'm happy for your new family, Patrick,' shared Davies warmly. "'I'm sorry I was in London when you married. Those fifteen months in England and Scotland were long, but successful.' I was able to raise funds for the College of New Jersey and bring back Bibles and hymnals for the congregations here. I've started teaching slaves in the community to read. Therefore, many of the books were for them. Patrick took a sip of water. I so admire you, Reverend. Thank you for all you do. Might my slaves also join you sometime? I would like nothing more than for them to learn. Of course, of course, Davies enthused. They are welcome to join the others. I hate their wretched condition, Patrick told the reverend with a frown, gazing out at his struggling fields. We're all working together the best we can, he sighed. I don't know if we'll make enough to get by. This drought is a farmer's worst nightmare. He clenched his jaw, lowering his gaze to the floor. And the seven thin ears devoured the seven rank and full ears, and Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream, quoted Davies from Genesis. The drought in Egypt didn't catch God by surprise. It was all part of his ultimate plan to bring good to the nation of Israel. What seemed like a nightmare for Pharaoh and the nations 
ended up being the means of deliverance for the people of God through Joseph, and Joseph's rise to power in Egypt led to the birth of a new nation. A nation born during 400 years of slavery, Patrick replied. I've often wondered why God chose to do that. Yes, but that nation, Israel, was led to freedom and the promised land by Moses, Davies quickly added, with a finger raised in the air. The drought that hit Egypt led to great things eventually, but it followed seven years of plenty. There's a lesson there for all of us. It is possible for our best years or experiences to be swallowed up by periods of failure and defeat, if we allow them to. Liz jumped up next to Patrick on the chair and meowed, Joseph had to endure slavery, failure, hardship, and prison before he found his true purpose. You are so very much like Joseph, Mon Henry. I loved him very much. Patrick smiled and rubbed Liz under the chin. This Liz talks as much as the first Liz. He thought a moment more. Joseph and Moses eventually found their purpose and did great things. I'm trying to figure out mine, but I only have nine mouths to feed, not a nation as they had. If I don't make it as a farmer... Sometime later, the brook dried up, Davies said, drawing a puzzled look from Patrick. That's from First Kings. Elijah fled to the Kareth Ravine, where God fed him with ravens and the brook for a season. But then a drought came, and he needed to move on to Zarephath. God knew that Elijah needed both seasons at Kareth, times of provision and times of drought. Why both seasons, Patrick wondered. What good came from the drought? If Elijah had gone right to Zarephath, he would have missed the season of depending on God alone to feed him and give him the water he needed, Davies answered. He learned things and gained wisdom that would make him a better prophet. He experienced the exact things experienced by the people to whom he would later minister. But his miracle awaited him at Zarephath. The young minister leaned over and looked at Patrick. And it was the drought that dried up his creek and forced him to move on to his miracle. Patrick took in a deep breath and sighed. Are you saying this drought will lead me to a miracle? Davy smiled and shrugged his shoulders. Only the Lord knows what this drought will lead you to, Patrick. I do know it'll teach you things you can't learn in any other way. You will gain wisdom that will be invaluable in ways you don't yet understand. God brought good from the droughts for Joseph and Elijah, so trust in his promise that he will also bring good to you and take care of you in the meantime. God is indeed faithful to his word and to his servants. But who am I? I'm just a young married farmer who failed at the last thing he tried and now has a young family to provide for. Patrick wore a sad smile. When I think about what is going on with this new war, I feel small. While I worry about rain and crops, other young men my age worry about fighting and death. I know my place is here providing for Sally and Patsy, but... He looked up at Davies with searching eyes. I wonder if I should be fighting for my country. Should I bring my sisters here to help at Pine Slash, or have the Sheltons take care of my wife and child? When I heard you preach for love of your country, my heart burned within me to do something. I love this land, 
and would gladly take up arms to defend her. Davies leaned forward and put his hand on Patrick's shoulder. I know that if you could, you would gladly go fight. Your faith and your patriotism are admirable, Patrick, he smiled. But you are most needed here. Your hands are far from idle, my friend. You are doing something. You are praying for our country and our soldiers. And you are admirably protecting and providing for nine precious souls by the sweat of your brow. You must keep up the fight here in order to help to survive and to grow that which is worth fighting for. Davy sat back with a wide smile. Just as Joseph and Elijah pressed on while they waited for good to come from their struggles, you must soldier on through this season in life. Patrick nodded and smiled. Thank you, Reverend Davies. I needed to hear that. Overton Plantation, Hanover, August 17, 1755 It was a hot and sticky morning, but hundreds gathered under the trees on blankets with their families to honor Hanover's newly formed militia before they went off to war. A local planter named George Overton, who lived between Pole Green and Hanover Courthouse, had raised this company of volunteer militia soldiers, most of whom were dissenters who worshipped at Pole Green. Overton funded and equipped the soldiers himself, and had called them to muster today at his plantation for a great send-off by family and friends with a picnic on the grounds. Reverend Davies was asked to give the farewell speech to encourage the men and their families. A total of 60 volunteers, aged 16 to 38, paraded through Overton's lawn to the beat of a drummer, muskets proudly resting on their shoulders. They marched to the front of the porch where Samuel Davies stood to address them. Once Captain Overton set them at ease, Davies lifted his hands in greeting. Britons, Virginians, Christians, Hanoverians, and neighbors, I am gratefully sensible of the unmerited honor you have done me in making choice of me to address you upon so singular and important an occasion. And I am sure I bring with me a heart ardent to serve you and my country, though I am afraid my inability and the hurry of my preparations may give you reason to repent your choice. I cannot begin my address to you with more proper words than those of a great general, which I have read to you. Be of good courage, and let us behave ourselves valiantly for our people, and for the cities of our God, and let the Lord do that which is good in his sight. Governor Dinwiddie has given our Davies here quite the unexpected title for a preacher, Nigel reported as he and Liz looked over the crowd. Oui, the governor calls Davies the colony's best recruiter, Liz answered with a smile. Nigel preened his whiskers proudly, no doubt due to the effect his printed war sermons have had on the colonists in Virginia. Good show, my dear. Liz watched as Patrick held Patsy in his lap, with Sally seated next to him on a blanket. I know that Patrick wishes he could march off with his friends here from Hanover, but I believe Davy's helped to settle his mind about plowing ahead in the fields. <laughs> Quite literally, Nigel quipped, but it is splendid to see how the men of Hanover have answered the call to take up arms. Courage is an essential character of a good soldier not a savage, ferocious violence, 
not a foolhardy insensibility of danger, or headstrong rashness to rush into it, not the fury of inflamed passions broke loose from the government of reason, but calm, deliberate, rational courage, Davies declared. The people of Morose lay at home in ease while their brethren were in the field, delivering their country from slavery. And what was their doom? Curse ye, Morose, said the angel of the Lord. Curse ye bitterly the inhabitants thereof, because they came not to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. Our brethren are already in the field, just like the people of Morose, Patrick thought to himself, as Davies recounted the verses from the book of Judges about those who wouldn't take up arms when called. We can't stand here idle. He clenched his jaw, wishing he could enlist with this group of soldiers getting ready to head to battle, but the responsibilities to his young family kept him home. He prayed that Davies' words would inspire even greater numbers of men to enlist and help turn the tide in the war. I count myself happy that I see so many of you generously engaged in such a cause, but when I view it in this light, I cannot but be concerned that there are so few to join you, Davies continued. He spread out his arms. Are there but fifty or sixty persons in this large and populous county that can be spared from home for a few weeks upon so necessary a design, or that are able to bear the fatigues of it? Where are the friends of human nature? Where the lovers of liberty and religion? Now is the time for you to come forth and shoe yourselves. I may point out to the public that heroic youth Colonel Washington, whom I cannot but hope Providence has hitherto preserved in so signal a manner, for some important service to his country. Davies turned his gaze to the sixty soldiers heading off to war. May the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, go forth along with you. May he teach your hands to war and gird you with strength to battle. May he bless you with a safe return and long life or a glorious death in the bed of honor and a happy immortality. May he guard and support your anxious families and friends at home, and return you victorious to their longing arms. May all the blessings your heart can wish attend you wherever you go. These are wishes and prayers of my heart, and thousands concur with them. And we cannot but cheerfully hope they will be granted through Jesus Christ. Amen. Immediately following his speech, a line of young men formed ready to also answer the call and join Overton's militia. Godspeed, a lump formed in Patrick's throat as he breathed a silent prayer for his brave brethren. Soldier on. Oh, poor Patrick. He so wants to join his brothers in arms. Aye, the arms, the legs, the whole bit of them from head to toe. Uh, we, Max, uh, head to toe. What I meant was... I say, uh, uh, let it go, old girl. You see, the greater point here is that whenever there is a great cause that benefits us all, uh, there is always an important part for each of us to play. Aye, but sometimes the job we get, well, uh, it don't make any sense then. Or often things seem to go wrong or even painfully bad. Aye, 
You'd think the maker would have it all worked out for us to be happy all the time and have everything work out right. <laughs> Actually, you are partially right, old chap. He never promised us that everything would be jolly good all the time. In fact, quite the opposite. Jesus said himself, in this world you will have trouble, and indeed, we live in a fallen world where each and every one of us is flawed and, well, let's face it, prone to be selfish, continually wanting to have our own way. Oui, this is true, Nigel. But uh, Jesus also said to take courage, for he has overcome the world. And he also promises to work all things together for good for those of us who love him and are called according to his purposes. Okay, so then, when things are hard to figure, when they be real ear-scratchers? Uh, you mean head-scratchers? <laughs> head-scratchers, ear-scratchers, tummy-scratchers, all sorts of places can be scratched. Uh, we get the picture. You're a doggy. Scratching is of great importance to you. Uh, but the point is, we are called to the maker's purposes, even when they don't seem right or don't seem fair. So we must remain confident that the Maker has a plan that we simply can't fully understand in the moment. We, oui, it is what we call faith. Hi, that were pretty deep then. <laughs> Me friends be pretty smart, eh? Uh, and speaking of smart friends, let's visit the lady smart enough to come up with all of this, uh, Miss Jenny L. Cooty. It be time for Jenny's Corner. And Miss Jenny has a question for us today. Uh, Madame? How many of you like hunting for Easter eggs? I do. Me, I do. Well, of course. Me, of course I do. I do. And you, Miss Jenny? I do. I always have. It's great fun. I love seeking out things. That's one reason why I love research so much. I like looking for what's hidden. Well, if you've ever heard the term Easter eggs in books or movies, they're tiny little hidden things that are kind of fun to find. And the author plugs them in here and there, and their little, their little winks or things to look out for. Well, there's an Easter egg in this chapter, and I don't know. Should I tell him what it is? What do you think, Max, uh, Liz, well, well, Nigel? Say, I'm afraid that we're not really. Should sure. we give him what the Easter egg is? We don't know ourselves, Miss Jenny. Well, I'm going to give you a hint. Patrick Henry, he's listening to Samuel Davies' sermon, talking about rallying people to fight for the cause in this French and Indian War and to support our troops. And he quotes scripture, and he gives these lessons, and Patrick Henry is sitting there, and he says, Our brethren are already in the field, just like the people of Morose. Our brethren are already in the field. Hmm... Where in the world could that show up later? I'll let you figure it out. Ah, but we don't know. I say, the old girl has left us a bit of a conundrum. No, I ate that this morning. Max, a conundrum is not something you eat. <laughs> now you tell me. No, 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 my point is, uh, these are words from Scripture, but Patrick seems to be applying them to his own situation of not going to battle. But then he's not staying home by his choice. We, oui, but he is being obedient to the Maker to take care of his family first. Indeed, he's being called according to the Maker's purpose, who promises to work all these things together for Patrick's good. Hey, that'd be smart thinking, Mosey. Hmm, 
and I believe his brilliant mind is storing these words for a future day when they will become his own words. Hmm, well, that'd be pretty brilliant thinking too, Kitty. Yeah, I mean, that's even making sense to me. I say it is. Well, then, by all means, uh, let's all quit while we're ahead, what? Aye. Oui. Indeed. Agreed. Oh, I see we're rhyming again. Uh, well, then, uh, when will we find out if we're right? When will this Easter egg come into the light? We'll have to keep listening till we find out at last the meaning of all this in a future podcast. Till then, see you next time! Once again, the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast, is produced by Playful World Ministries, a department of ACT International. All of the Epic Order of the Seven characters and adventures were created by and written by Jenny L. Cody. And remember, you can download your very own copy of the audiobook, The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key, by visiting audible.com. That's www.audible.com. And you can find the entire collection of Jenny L. Cody's Epic Order of the Seven books by going to her website, www.epicorderofthe7.com. And I'm Denny Brownlee. Thank you for listening, and join us next time on the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast. Have a grandi! A bientôt, mes amis! Huzzah! And ta-ta! And always remember, you are loved and you are able.